Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I continue my discussion with my friend Pete Spiliakos, columnist at First Things, about strong female characters and the movie landscape dominated by Marvel and DC blockbusters. So let's get to it, Pete. Let's get back to discussing our modern Wonder Woman situation. One problem we have is with our low-class genres, with the horror, with the thriller, with the kinds of movies we were discussing, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Terminator, people did not take sufficiently seriously the fact that these movies had female heroines. As you pointed out, in our cultural memory, this is not how we remembered them. Both the studios and we as an audience are at fault for this. We did not do well enough by the attempts our storytellers made to take young women seriously. The movement from Nightmare on Elm Street to Wonder Woman, there was a problem them in those times, the low-class genres were not just looked down on, which to some extent is understandable and the right thing to do, but people weren't much better at noticing what was going on when they did like it. And this is partly a fault of the studios. The studios did force all the sequels they could get because that's what studios do, they're basically Philistines. But I would say that part of the moral fault lies with the audiences. The audiences also wanted more of the same, and although they recognized that they were getting ripped off and that they were themselves disappointed by these utterly mediocre or miserable sequels, they never really looked for anything better and they often didn't give a chance to better fare precisely because they weren't sufficiently aware of the fact that the heroines in these movies really, really matter. If you want to turn the Nancy Thompson character into a memorable character, you have to sex her up. The same would have had to be done with the Sarah Connor character played by Linda Hamilton in The Terminator. And that is a problem. It is part of why we don't have heroine characters who do their job very well. And James Cameron is right to say that. He had to face much more difficult situation and made much better use of meager resources in 1984 than an entire studio and ideological movement did with blockbuster resources in 2017. Of course, you're not gonna get credit. You're just not gonna. That's how it works. Part of the problem with the audience, I don't think the audience is bad, comes back to Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, to Rocky sequels. I think it comes back to Terminator sequels. Trying to recapture the feeling of what made the first movie great. But the problem with all three of those movies is that by the end of that movie, the arc of those characters is complete. The journey is done. And by trying to go back in a sequel, what you're trying to do is a cargo cult mentality. You're trying to get the feeling from the first movie by aping some of the externals of the original. And it's just not working. Now, I do think that on one level, the audience understood why Nightmare on Elm Street was great, why it got them in their gut. And Nightmare on Elm Street 2 didn't. I think they understood on one level why the first Terminator was emotionally affecting while they walked out of the second Terminator and going, wow, weren't those special effects great? I do think there's a level in which the audience understands what makes those movies great and they want it over and over again. It's just that the studios can't produce those movies again because Rocky's already come to the end of that particular journey in the first Rocky movie. Nancy's already reached adulthood in the next movie. Sarah Connor has already overcome not just the Terminator, but her own sense of her own helplessness and lostness in Terminator. And going back, the audience is trying to come back home again, and there's just no coming home again because those stories were written to be self-contained about a human life. And more robots, bigger boxing opponents to fight, more quips by Freddy Krueger, they're only aping the externals of what made the story good rather than what actually made it work. It's like, I like riding in a car and you build something that has wheels and it has a chassis and it has seats and it has a steering wheel, but there's no engine because you don't actually understand it's the engine that makes it go. Yep, it's a very good point. And to speak a bit more about this, a couple of the problems that I've identified are, yes, the audience wants to go back to something good, but they also want a winner. They want to push things further to get more of the sensational stuff which is a form of sentimentality you cannot get that without a good plot and that is tied up with something else people remember where they were so to speak when they saw the terminator these things become part of a cultural memory people become fanboys they feel they have a possession in these things and they guard it jealously they don't want to allow even the director who gave them something they love to try his hand at something else to say something more that he thinks is worthwhile and in that sense the philistinism of the studio that wants more of the same to sell it as though they didn't understand basic market forces what oversupplying will do to demand 
but it's also a problem at an emotional level for the audience. They want to recapture that moment in their lives and the phenomenon and the social thing of telling other people, oh my God, did you see that? Or other people introducing you to something you'll really love. They don't want to take a risk on something else. They just want to stick with that and they turn stories into fetishes. And in that sense, it's a matter of saying to people, grow out of it. Nancy Thompson in the movie grew up. You have got to grow up too. Sarah Connor grew up. You also have to grow up and look for the next thing. It cannot be this forever. It's like in the famous SNL sketch where William Shatner ridicules and chastises all those Star Trek nerds because they're so starstruck and in being starstruck they're jealously guarding their own adolescence and even infantility. Star Trek can be some part of your life but it's not that big a deal. Well also I remember Jerry Seinfeld making the point that at some point it becomes the responsibility of the artist to say no. That at some point the audience will want more and more of something even though that thing can't be good anymore. And one of the reasons why he ended Seinfeld when he did was he felt the stories he wanted to tell had been told. And continuing to go through the motions to have these husks of the original characters making unfunny jokes in an unrecognizable situation badly for people who are only watching it because they're used to watching it and they're afraid of watching anything else doesn't work anymore. So he ended the show and the alternative to Seinfeld is The Simpsons where the show was in you to to shamble on for decades even though it has long since lost anything that made it good. And I think the Rocky sequels, I think the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, the Terminator sequels, they all partake of the same problem. They're trying to recapture an original story but they're failing because one, they don't have a particularly good story to tell even though the Terminator 2 is a pretty good movie and they're also trying to please an audience that rather watch something mediocre to bad yep but it's familiar well this conspiracy of the studios and the audience against the writers directors you're forced into a situation where the entire society is basically against you james cameron waited seven or eight years to make a sequel and he wanted to make such a different movie ultimately unsuccessfully because he didn't want to get trapped in the sequel problem this is also so admirable about tom cruise who throughout his career avoided not just making sequels but avoided trends he decided instead to go with whatever famous director would have him go with any director who has a reputation for originality go there if you want to be a star don't go to whatever is trendy or selling that didn't always serve him well but you can see what he was pushing against he wanted to be a star but didn't want to sell out to trends and to popularity but it's really really hard to fight off the studio and the audience all the time and is that's just not enough of a guide and that points out this problem we have completely succumbed to sequels which just a generation before all artists were against who had any combination of prestige and popularity therefore we have turned cinema or the stars into b-movies sequels used to be a feature of the b-movies and of tv everything that made movies movies depended on the fact that they were self-enclosed they had a strong dramatic impact for that reason with the beginning and the middle and the end we have compromised that so much that we move from the tv series that endlessly goes on so like a soap opera it has to tell you in a new episode what happened in previous episodes to the marvel situation where after a movie of no importance they tell you in post-credit scenes and mid-credit scenes and pre-credit scenes what things are going to happen next because what happened right now doesn't have any importance never mind that it completely kills the dramatic impact of a movie and its psychological effect what's happening here is hype for the next big thing that's not going to be a real big thing this hunger in the audience for meaningful stuff and on the other hand in the studios for reliable money makers conspire to crowd out talent and the risk takers and the kinds of insights that you could find in low-class movies the fact that uh, these are low-class genres doesn't make the director or the writer a loser he might have something really interesting to say that americans should be paying attention to at least when like with these movies they respond to it immediately they see oh yeah there's something there but instead things turn into fanboys and criticism turns into fanboyism and that crowds out the talent neither on the studio side is there an interest in cultivating writers and directors nor on the consumption side of the audience is there a need and yearning for the stuff that says okay you like this there's a lot to discover there discover it don't just get stuck with a fetish i do think the temptation is real i also think that in one way the public is able to distinguish 
between quality and not quality. I have something I like to call the margin of suckitude. You have two movies that are comparable in their profile, but one movie just does much better than the other because on one level, one movie is much better, the Ghostbusters reboot, which is not a good movie, and Wonder Woman, which at its level is a pretty enjoyable movie. And Wonder Woman made over $200 million more million than Ghostbusters, the reboot. That's a pretty fair representation of the margin of suckitude between the two movies. If Ghostbusters had been as good at being a horror comedy as Wonder Woman had comic book action adventure, Ghostbusters would have cleaned up. But Ghostbusters wasn't very good and it didn't get the repeat business. So I think on one level, people do want the quality, but at the same time, they're more comfortable accepting mediocrity at a certain level until at some point they just give in. If the movies are bad enough for long enough, they will stop showing up. But I also think we could distinguish between sequels for the sake of sequels and storytelling cycles across multiple movies. One line of a sequel that exists just to be a sequel is when the protagonist has to backtrack in the course of the sequel from the progress they made in the previous movie. Where the studio has to tell you that, alright, that progress you saw in that movie wasn't real progress. Now we have to go through that journey again or we have to go through a very different journey that invalidates the original journey. I think one of the classic examples of that is A Night at the Museum. A very good movie that among all its other elements is about the dignity of low-wage work. And at the beginning of Night at Museum 2, he has undone all that work. He's no longer working at the museum. Now he's an entrepreneur. He's turned his back on his previous responsibilities. And basically what that movie told you was everything you saw in that movie didn't matter. The climax wasn't a change. You see the same thing in the second Rocky. And that's a sign of a sequel that wasn't planned. It's a sequel that's made almost entirely for commercial reasons that violates the spirit of the original. And on the other hand, you might have the Nolan Batman movies. Really a three-play cycle. They're not sequels in the sense of one is Batman 2. The journey isn't a one-movie journey. It's a three-movie journey. And we see the progressions of that journey through the character. You know, you don't really see a progression of a character, even in reasonably good movies like the first Avenger and Winter Soldier. Decent enough movies in their own context, but you don't see the character growth. Yeah, I agree. These are very good points to make. There are real advantages to long-form storytelling, whether you do it on a Netflix series or in a trilogy spanning eight or nine years like Nolan did with Batman. You do get to say to your audience, okay, we've been through a lot of stuff. This is where we're starting now. I don't have to start from scratch. I can assume you've been paying attention to and loving and moving along with, that is an advance in storytelling. It also does something just because young Americans get to grow up with something that itself grows up. Like it or not, the movies are the social education of young Americans. Making social phenomena out of the movies is a bad thing, but you at least have to make the most of it. On the other hand, like you said, you gotta squeeze more money out of this. There's gotta be some balance between squeezing money out of stuff and squeezing money out of stuff in a worthwhile way. The other part of it is trickier. One reason sequels get made is because that's how second-rate talent became stardom. And who doesn't want to be a star? It's not just the money, it's being a star that's in itself so attractive. The Americans also celebrate and worship their celebrities. And it becomes a real problem when it becomes a celebrity culture, of course. At that point, there is no distinction between talent and non-talent, between people who shock you and people who give you something worthwhile that you'll want to be coming back to later. This goes on to the audience, too. At some point, Marvel vs. DC turns into a competitive spectator sport. It's good to be a fanboy in itself. Just like the studio thinks about its further profits in merchandising and endless commercial tripe, so also the fans think about their benefits in loyalty in terms of the next Comic-Con or whatever. And at that point this becomes pathological, promotes a certain kind of escapism that will inevitably kill talent. This is also to an extent a matter of market signals. As you pointed out, some suckitude is punished. Some kind of talent, not to say genius, is rewarded. So it's not a difference in kind, but a difference in degree. We need to move more in the direction of punishing the bad stuff and rewarding the good stuff. Especially we need to make sure we're not moving in the other direction, which is what serialization endlessly for everything portends. The question here, for example, would be, does more control over your screens, over your movie watching, over your ability to curate your experiences as a consumer of culture on Netflix, does that lead in a good direction or a bad direction? It's hard to say so early in the game, but I think it's something people should be concerned with. It's important to think, how could people make a difference? How could market signals transfer into this situation with the culture? 
Then there's the other part I mentioned that's not about the markets or economics, it's about society and politics, celebrity worship, and what people think of as heroes. That matters a lot. That's what's so important about what James Cameron in his curmudgeon and self-congratulating way was trying to get at. Stop celebrating supermodels. There is something to be said for celebrating lower class characters. In the 80s, action comedies and other genres without going all the way to the slasher horror took into view lower class America, middle class America. It did not have to be oligarchs, tech geniuses, billionaires, supermodels, male and female. Marvel has managed to turn Thor, the god of war, not just into a sex symbol, but a mere male model. That guy is less scary than that kid girl in Nightmare on Elm Street. That's a good point. He is cuddly. I mean, that's true. And part of Cameron's criticism is that on one level, I think it's okay that Wonder Woman is played by a supermodel who's really tall. But I would like to see less hypocrisy in the praise of it. A lot of critics are switching off certain critical lenses that they use for this movie. And there's something really conformist about the criticism of it. I think it's okay in the context of the DCU that Wonder Woman looks the way she does. But a lot of people who are praising it would find it really, as the term is used today, problematic to have her look like that. But they are choosing not to look at it with those lenses because they're preferring to join the crowd as what a great feminist triumph it is when it's a more ambivalent movie. And there's something really dishonest, and there's something really bullying in some of the historical praise of Wonder Woman. I think it's also something really insincere about it. On social media, you see people talking about how they saw Wonder Woman and they cried, and his girlfriend cried, my boyfriend cried, my mother cried, the whole theater cried. Yeah, it was a deluge. It's one of those things where you wonder if the people who are saying these things expect anybody in the world to believe. It's one of those things where people post on the internet about how their eight-year-old kid just delivered Hillary Clinton's Democratic convention speech verbatim. Does anyone really expect to believe this nonsense? On the one hand, well, they don't expect people to believe it. They expect people to pretend to believe it. That's what James Cameron was reacting against, where he told a lot of Wonder Woman's more hyperbolic praisers, I know what you guys are up to, and you know what you guys are up to. That's part of why the reaction to it was so intense, that he hit a nerve describing some of the praise as insincere performance, which happens to be true. Yep, and he has the money and the status and the connections to survive this media backlash and show trial in the celebrity world. So he could afford to do this, many others could afford to do it, but they don't do it. That's what's so weird about this, how much success is tied up with conformism and talk about principles or principled achievements or progress is really nothing but success worship. It's not even success. It's an illusion of success. One of the problems Marvel Comics is they're, quote, diverse heroes. I don't think the problem is necessarily the diverse. There's no reason why any particular Marvel character can't be Hispanic or Asian or black. The comics just aren't that good. But I think that a lot of executives on Marvel Comics would look at their announcement of changing one of their characters and they would look at the likes and the retweets on social media and they think it would translate into sales, into real popularity, but they don't because a lot of it is log rolling among a relatively small segment of the population and it creates the impression of a juggernaut where there really isn't. One of the reasons why there's so much conformism is that people are terrified of being dragged by these accounts on these social media platforms where there will be 5 or 6 or 10 or 12 or 15,000 people who are liking or retweeting something that criticizes you. And it seems like the whole world is against you, where really only one lunatic asylum is against you. And out there in the real world, nobody knows or cares who you are. Yep, that's exactly true. And I can understand both as a business decision trying to monetize moralism. After all, that's what they were doing in the 40s and the 50s, just with different moralism. I can also understand this fear that any business should have. How do you turn a profit? How do you know that the stuff that you're doing and is worthwhile now is going to stay that way? If you change, what if it's a bad change? If you don't change, what if it's a bad idea not to change? And so you reach for some kind of prestigious moralism as though that's a prophecy of the future. That's fairly crazy and it's turning ugly in a partisan way and it's turning morality into performance. As you mentioned about the kids who are supposedly woke on any number of things, every kid on Twitter is now the Dalai Lama's next incarnation. One way in which this is really problematic, not politically correct problematic, is 
What if this lady who directed Wonder Woman reads the press, goes through this spat, and believes the press? Guaranteeing that instead of learning something from James Cameron, Wonder Woman 2 will suck badly. Yeah, I'm almost hoping that her response to James Cameron was mostly disingenuous, that it was public relations focused, because not every part of James Cameron's criticism, I think, was correct. Many of the artistic choices that Patty Jenkins made were appropriate, given the context of the DCU. And I think that before we talk about what Patty Jenkins might have gotten right or wrong, I'd just like to talk about giving her the credit she deserves and having some perspective on how good a movie Wonder Woman was relative to what expectations might be. When it comes to superhero movies, I like to apply something I call the first Avenger test. Is it as good as the first Captain America movie? Now, the first Captain America movie is a nice looking movie. It moves along. If you dig past its glossy exterior, it has huge problems of both characterization and theme. But it's a very enjoyable action movie. And my attitude about superhero movie is if it's as good or better than First Avenger, it's worth watching. Wonder Woman is a better movie than First Avenger. And when you look at how good the movie is relative to the movies we should be comparing it to, it's a really good superhero origin movie. It's on the level, I think, of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. Iron Man's a better movie for two out of three acts, because Iron Man is a terrible third act. But I even think it's better than the first Iron Man movie. That's quite an impressive achievement, given that, unlike Christopher Nolan, she wasn't starting her universe from scratch. She was working within a universe that had been created by Zack Snyder and by suits at DC Comics. And she was doing the first series that attempted a Wonder Woman live-action movie. She was laboring under these enormous handicaps. Yeah, and I think that's also encouraging precisely because you see what expectations the studio has. You can see in which ways the industry isn't really helping you out when you're trying to do something worthwhile. And there are ways of succeeding. Whoever is trying next is going to have some things to look at and to think about. Another thing that I like to point out, the Nolan brothers were big readers of Frank Miller Batman comics. These were people who were very knowledgeable about the comics and who actually loved them. As kids, and as they grew up, they became more thoughtful. They saw that there was something thoughtful there that comic books had turned middle brow, both on the DC and the Marvel side. There aren't just great Batman stories. There are also great Daredevil stories and their Marvel characters. And when you have somebody who knows this stuff and who likes it well enough to work hard at it, you do have a natural advantage. I have no idea whether the lady who directed Wonder Woman, Patty Jenkins, knows or cares about these kinds of things. But for example, Logan. One reason that's better than all the best stuff in all the X-Men movies before put together is because the guy who made it, James Mangold, really loves old man Logan. Now, I couldn't be bothered to read that comic, but it matters that he could be bothered to do it. There is a resource to kickstart franchises, people who grew up with this stuff but wisened up and still retain some love for it. The combination of astuteness in adulthood and the love for these stories in childhood is really useful. One of the things that distinguishes, say, Logan or Batman or even Man of Steel is that the director in all of those movies was not bound by continuity particularly. They were creating the universe's rules and aesthetic entirely for that movie. Even Logan takes an I-could-take-it-or-leave-it approach to continuity. It's aesthetically a very different movie. Batman Begins makes it a point to be a very different movie from any Batman movies before. Same thing with Man of Steel. Whereas with Wonder Woman, the movie is trying to work within the DCU Dawn of Justice aesthetic. A Zack Snyder aesthetic. Patty Jenkins just doesn't have as much control over the mythology or the aesthetics. And James Cameron misinterpreting about how the camera leers at Wonder Woman. It's that in the DCU. The camera leering at the protagonist, whether male or female, is part of the aesthetic. We both like Man of Steel, but why are Clark Kent's pecs so big? Yeah, I think that's completely cretinous. He's put that guy through the regimen that actors pride themselves now on instead of talent for a 10-second shot at best. And not only that, it, it makes no sense. Superman is not strong because he has bigger muscles than everybody else. He's a space alien. In fact, why would his muscles even be so big? What is Clark Kent bench pressing? But the big muscles aesthetic elevates the audience's experience of the conflict. In the same way, emphasizing Gail Gadot's curves does doesn't make any sense. Nope, it really doesn't. And the aesthetic wasn't created for the Wonder Woman movie. It was created largely, I suspect, by Zack Snyder for the DCU. And Patty Jenkins is working within that convention. I don't think she should be blamed for it. Yeah, I agree. Cameron was right to criticize the aesthetic, but not right to focus on this issue. 
is this is not where it came up. The look of Wonder Woman is from Dawn of Justice. And of course the broader problem that at some point you have to start thinking about Superman in a way that's not just big pecs and six-pack abs. That's important in the same way in which the Zack Snyder Chris Nolan Man of Steel thinks about Krypton in a serious way. The look of the place goes with the story of the place. So also in this case the look of the character should go with the story of the character. There is reason to criticize it. There's no reason to fixate on the supermodel Wonder Woman. This is something that will have to be worked out. The identification of celebrities and superheroes or the attempt to produce new celebrities in Hollywood through superheroes is going to bring up this problem of power and beauty which of course are just not the same thing and it's going to bring up this question in America about celebrity worship and success worship. They say important things about society. The real problem if you want to look at beauty in Wonder Woman is that unlike Krypton which makes sense for the Superman story, the island of the Amazons makes absolutely no sense either thematically or aesthetically. You would have to have writers and directors who confront the question. If you have these women who are fighting with super dangerous weaponry all the time, there should be some scars somewhere. These things will help you think further about the story and they'll help the audience understand more about what you try to say to them through visual cues rather than you having to yap the mouth at the audience. That's the kind of criticism that I think should be made, not the kind of criticism that's likely to come up with a press hysteria and maybe a defensive attitude among the people who are supposed to learn to do better. Yeah, I also think that part of the problem with Amazon Island is that its nature undermines its purpose in the story. At the beginning, they tell you that the Amazons came into existence in order to teach the rest of humanity. And once we get to Amazon Island, we learn that the way Amazons learned to be civilized was to be magic Zeus Amazons. Well, gee, thanks for nothing. That setup right there undermines the central conflict of the story because it tells us that the way to overcome sin is to be people who are without sin. Well, thanks. And see why the strategy failed. Yeah, it's completely ridiculous. And that does create create a big plot problem and the next one is going to have to work its way around this cretinism. Forgetfulness does have certain advantages but they would still have to confront the problem and try to fix it the next time in the context of the next one because if there's anything we know for sure there will be a next one. Yeah it made 800 million dollars it will be another Wonder Woman but at the same time I also think to a large extent these criticisms are the result of a revolution of rising expectations whereas if this Wonder Woman had been made not only with these special effects but a story with this level of sophistication in the early 80s it would have been a quantum leap. Just to give you one example, because Wonder Woman is so praised, gets in for a lot of criticism, other superhero movies are spared. Let's look at First Avenger. Enjoyable movie, but neither the protagonist nor the villain make a lick of sense in that movie. You never believe for a second that Chris Evans is a New York street kid born in the 1920s. Whereas you definitely believe that Tom Lee Jones is a Southern officer in the U.S. Army. Everything about him, not just his accent, but from his bearing, tells you who he is. Whereas Chris Evans is a bad illusion. Of course, the Red Skull is an absolutely terrible villain, whose motivations make no sense, whose aesthetic is idiotic, whose followers have a completely moronic and comical double fist salute. And if we were to apply the critical lens that we apply to Wonder Woman to the first Avenger, we would tear that movie completely apart. That's true. This criticism is very important precisely because we live in a world of sequels. There's a reason the Captain America movie, the second, was horrible. They didn't learn anything from the mistakes of the first and try to fix them in a new way. So also with Iron Man 2, which has been forgotten by everybody. Iron Man 3 was better in certain ways and failed in new ways because of the really good writer-director, Shane Black, the guy behind action comedies in the 80s and 90s. And they run out of ideas faster and faster. Avengers 2, of course, is a miserable movie in just about every sequel. Captain America the third movie is not even a Captain America movie, it's an Iron Man movie. All about Iron Man and his daddy issues and his technological problems and whatever else. That's what happens when you don't learn from what's good and what's bad in your story to try to make it better the next time. At least Wonder Woman, its climax is its climax. The climax is actually the best part of the movie. In the first Iron Man movie, which I think is an enjoyable movie, the entire third act is completely worthless. Tony Stark completes his character arc when he leaves Afghanistan. The movie could have ended there, but for reasons of convention, they didn't feel like they could have the movie end at the one hour mark. You had a great romantic comedy in the first act, you had a guy growing up in the second act, and the movie emotionally ends with him coming back from Afghanistan and forming a relationship with Pepper Pot. All the other stuff, with the ironmonger, the big fight at the end, it's a complete waste of time. 
Avengers runs out of ideas about halfway through the third act. Even the first one. The first Avengers movie is very enjoyable until you have the completely generic, completely unthreatening, completely undramatic space alien monsters who beat up New York City and who are, at the same time, complete losers. Huge numbers of them are beaten up by each and every Avenger. The movie just couldn't figure out a threat that could tie the movie's themes together because the themes of the movie had really come together before the climax. It was how do these powerful personalities learn to coexist? And they'd learn to coexist really on the shield helicarrier. That's really what the movie should have been but they had to have big giant fight but the big giant fight is completely emotionally uninvolving i agree this criticism also reveals certain important things just like we were saying about horror movies about james cameron about dc movies in our podcast about that villains are really important for this kind of movie and socially that means people have to figure out how to live with the fact that you're really scared about something and how to symbolize that something in a great villain if it doesn't matter to how Americans think about their lives, whether they realize it or not, then it's gonna flop. But Marvel is explicitly about not having any kind of villains. And that's very important for what Marvel is and for why it's popular. And I think even that has got to be made to work within its own constraints because it is part of the escapism that Americans like. Every Marvel movie has to end with a spectacular fight that has no stakes to it. There's a name for that, moral triumphalism. And it should be doing that. That is part of American character. What are you going to do? It just should be doing it better. It should learn. This is your business here. And there's a reason the audience keeps eating it up. There's a reason people don't walk out in the third act. It's not wrong to give them what they want if you do this thing right. Because it is part of the national character. It's never going to be as great as the confrontation with a great villain. But that's not the only thing in the world. There is a lot of room, obviously, for Marvel to do business. It's just a question of whether doing business is going to be worthwhile as a story, or is going to keep screwing up endlessly. I think the one Marvel villain that comes to mind as being pretty good is Loki. Loki's motivations make sense. He's desperate for belonging, desperate for place, feels like an outsider. Loki feels like a human being. Whereas look at Captain America 2. I enjoy two-thirds of it. The fight scene in the street is extremely enjoyable action scene. The basic idea of Captain America having to learn to be an outcast, it's extremely hackneyed in the comic books, but on screen it's okay. The big problem with Winter Soldier is that you don't for a moment believe that the little potato-looking guy from the first Captain America movie managed to corrupt S.H.I.E.L.D. And you don't for a second believe that Robert Redford thinks that he's going to establish safety and order by having a helicarrier kill some middle school student in New Jersey. Their motivations don't make sense. Why does the Red Skull want to kill anybody? And the only reason this movie needs a villain, but his motivations aren't understandable in the same way that Zod's motivations are understandable. They're just generic bad guy. Same thing with the soldier. The main bad guys are only bad because we need a bad guy. And since you can't invest in their worldview, it eliminates a lot of the stakes from the conflict. Because at that point, the helicarrier might be a lightning strike. Since it's not killing anybody for any particular reason, there's no conflict of values. Not even a conflict of symbols. Yeah, I agree at that level. But again, there is a reason to have this kind of thing. It's about not underestimating what madness can do in the wrong circumstances. People do crazy things, organizations, massive institutions end up doing crazy things for no good goddamn reason. Partly it's a combination of circumstances as impersonal as lightning, partly it's the logic of a certain kind of contempt. And that is an important thing. And you could have this all-American triumphalism of morally worthwhile heroes against institutions that become corrupt. Because in those cases, whoever's at the top of the institution or whoever's driving it to a catastrophe is not really a villain in the sense of world-threatening principles symbolized. It's just a combination of bad faith and bad circumstances. There is room for an entire kind of storytelling, but that's what it would have to be about. You do have to fix your Robert Redford problem. Why do institutions grow corrupt? You don't need a villain for that. So all of these things could work. It's just that you would have to do it properly. You'd have to admit that you're not in the business of selling sensational villains. There's somebody else who's cornered that market, and that's fine. You can be in the market of selling sensational heroes, which the other guy doesn't have. They cannot feel these kinds of little armies of heroes who do all sorts of wondrous things. There is room for wonderment in, in this kind of movie making. It's just that it's not done properly. A lot of what criticism should be doing is to show, okay, this is the kind of story, this is the way it makes sense in relation to its audience, and this is how it could be dealt with from the point of view of storytelling. 
This is about having a school for writers. Don't just think that there are three acts and there's got to be a climax and a conflict and a happy end. These things make sense in specific ways in specific genres with their own different moods and aesthetics. You have certain choices, but some things are just fixed by the nature of the thing. Learn that and you won't be making the horrible mistakes that you see in these things. If you have an entire franchise that's worth umpteen billions apparently in perpetuity and it never has a good third act, maybe you could have learned by the third or the tenth one. But the truth is that the critics themselves don't learn these things and don't talk about them. I do think it's odd. I mean, you do see here and there, I can't quote chapter and verse, some criticism of Marvel's third act problem. I think they're right. And there's also criticism of Marvel's villain problem. The writing is extremely lazy, trying to figure out the motivations of the villains. Whereas in better stories, the villain presents a moral challenge to the hero. You can actually see where the villain has a point. Whereas in the Marvel movies, you almost never see where the villain might have a distorted version of a legitimate point. They might as well be physical obstacles rather than persons or symbols. That does remove a lot of the stakes from the movie because there's never this sneaking suspicion that maybe the villain is speaking the truth that we don't want to hear. That does eliminate some of the dramatic tension from most of the Marvel movies. Yeah, I think I can put it to you in terms of political philosophy this way. DC movies are always about foundings because they're about first principles. In DC movies, you see these moments of criticism of the very principles of political philosophy, of democracy, of rule with consent, of enlightenment, of individual rights. They will always be challenged at the first principle level, and that just works much better in a founding story. Now, this is not what Marvel does. Marvel is not about first principle challenges. Marvel is about institutional collapse and thinking about political philosophy only at the level of deliberation, where we are all agreed about the ends we are trying to pursue, but our disagreements about how to pursue them, and our unwillingness to face the facts of pursuing institution building and institutional maintenance, lead us to conflicts among ourselves that are really scary in the consequences they might bring about. That's what Marvel is dedicated to saying. There is no enemy outside of America. The enemy is in America. What is the enemy? Nobody's really evil. What's happening is we're divided against ourselves. It's Captain America Civil War. It's Iron Man versus Captain America. If they could do it right, that's what it would be. It's the Avengers falling out against one another. The same thing, by the way, is happening in Marvel television with the Marvel Netflix series The Defenders, where they have their little team of other superheroes who are divided among themselves. So that only works at the level of deliberation, where you say, we know our common purpose, but we're disagreeing about how to pursue it, and that disagreement could turn very destructive for us, for our own faults. Not because there's some kind of villain we really need to be afraid of. Iron Man 3, which is just the best in these terms, literally shows you, oh yeah, there's this guy, he's a Muslim terrorist. Turns out, no, he's just a fake actor. The real villain is an American tech oligarch. It's us. It's something within ourselves that we've taken too far of the wrong way. It's a competition between Iron Man and that other tech oligarch. This will never make for a Greek tragedy. But it is a worthwhile form of storytelling. And it could be done well, but you have to understand where you stand and what sort of thing you're doing, and that means educate the writers. And also, this storytelling does tend to reduce the stakes at some point. There's a certain genre of spy movie where the spy problem is almost entirely a mole within the organization. The conflict is ultimately caused by the existence of a spy organization. Well, why doesn't just everybody go home then? If you just got rid of the spy agency, there wouldn't be any more moles. The same problem with that style of superhero movie. One of the things that made Marvel Comics great was that in the Fantastic Four, the conflict between the superhero characters was just as important as the conflict between the superheroes and the supervillains. They transfer that to the Avengers, and one of the things that made the Avengers work is that the scenes where the characters are in conflict with each other are really emotionally engaging. Whereas when they're in conflict against external enemies, it's not nearly as emotionally engaging. If what you're fighting against is completely uninteresting, simply a mechanism for bringing you together, it reduces the stakes. Yes, or... it does. But that's the whole point of the movie. All superhero movies are about the question whether you can be human. And that means, first of all, can you understand what's going on in the world around you? And second of all, can you act to improve things in the world around you? The one's intellectual, the other is a moral criterion. And if they come together, then you can have heroes. It's perfectly possible to think that you're in a situation that you can understand but not change, like a terminal disease. That opens up two possibilities for superhero movies. One of them is to say that the danger is as great as you fear when you've got some kind of symptoms and you go on WebMD and you think, oh my god, I have cancer. And then you're going to have to deal with that magnitude of a problem. But it is also a real threat. You have to deal with people who grow hysterical when they shouldn't, who think that the problem is world-shattering like aliens from another dimension, when in fact it's not that bad. It's an internal problem, not a foreign problem, ultimately. That could also be done well. 
as I said, the combination of institutional collapse through neglect and on the other hand corruption turning nasty and evil, that is what Marvel should be doing. This is where Marvel Netflix shows, especially Daredevil, worked at their best. And that's what should be happening. There's a reason Marvel is dominated by Iron Man. It's ultimately a reflection on technology. Sure, we need it. Sure, it makes for a new kind of manly adventure and heroism. Sure, it works out for the good of democracy in helping people's lives. But it comes with all sorts of problems. Some of them because of oligarchs, some of them because of Democrats, some of them because of neglect or what have you. And we have to deal with that. Even in his dreams, Iron Man dreams of tech nightmares. That's a certain reflection on America, and it is worth doing, and it is something that could be done well, while, as you said, lowering the stakes. Ultimately, this is not about our first principles. This is about our deliberation. But even if you're going to do a collapse, the institutions have to collapse in a way that, if not necessarily plausible literally, it's plausible emotionally. The people involved have to see both the products and the causes of this institutional collapse. Exactly. It's it... the exact combination, the second tier villain you're going to have. Somebody who is the cause of great problems because he is himself the product of problems that didn't seem great at the time. With some admixture of bad luck. Sometimes it's bad circumstances that open up something that's really bad without making it personal. I completely agree with this and that's why I'm saying even a reflection like we're trying here could show you, okay, there's an avenue here. There's something you could really get done if you start focusing a bit less on effects and a bit more on what kind of institutions were you? You've got a technology problem, okay, let's think more about this. What are we doing here? The thing is, what kind of government institutions make government sufficiently weak that that superficially Iron Man, but symbolically a tech oligarch needs to take over? One institutional rock leads S.H.I.E.L.D. to become a rogue organization. We have resources in history and in philosophy for what kind of person would produce these problems. The problem with all of these movies is that the people who are ultimately the threat never come across as credible in terms of having corrupted the institution. They come back to Winter Soldier, the Red Skull's number two guy, this cowardly potato-looking guy. He corrupted S.H.I.E.L.D.? You don't buy it for even a second. At, at that point, it makes the institutional collapse not something that's a reflection on our culture, but it's simply a MacGuffin. Here I disagree with you. I agree about everything you said up until the MacGuffin. What happens in Winter Soldier is that you recycle anti-war paranoia, anti-military paranoia. Why? Because it worked so well for the Democrats in 2004 and 2006 and 2008, and it's just so much of a part, therefore, of the Hollywood culture. That's the point here. This is ultimately a weakness in writers who are pandering to ideology instead of trying to work on their stories properly. You'd have to think, as you said, about what's happening in the government, what's happening in our institutions. How much power have we devolved to Google? Is Facebook the most important editor in American journalism? These things are real questions that could be dealt with, and there are, of course, any number of other ones. You could have a great Iron Man or Captain America movie about why the hell can't Americans build new world technology? What the hell happened to procurement? What the hell happened to research and development? And any number of these things where institutional collapse and corruption would combine to give you a good story, it's worthwhile, true to America, entertaining for the audience, but doesn't set the stakes at the end of the world. What I would disagree is that you can really tell a good story in Winter Soldier, built around the anti-war, anti-Bush frame. You could actually have villains in that story that are Bush parables, or Rumsfeld parables, or Dick Cheney parables, and have them be good. But at that point, you have to invest more energy and more effort into explicating their worldview, even if it's just to reject it. But to have the guy from the first Captain America, who's decidedly unclear, who's decidedly shallow, to have him narrate how he caused the fall of S.H.I.E.L.D., compare that scene right there to God's monologue at the end of Man of Steel, or compare it to Ares' monologue at the end of Wonder Woman. I completely agree. The thing is, you could build a movie around rejecting a demonized version of Dick Cheney's view of the world. But at that point, you have to invest in making his view of the world superficially plausible and compelling. Because if it's completely repulsive, then you're not rejecting anything. Yes, I agree. So this shows you something about the liberal ideology that permeates Hollywood, which is not about the new cycle or the hysteria or what have you. It's about getting trapped in between something like Iron Man is Steve Jobs but sexy and witty. And on the other hand, you're in this situation where you want political paranoia, as in the Winter Soldiers, but not exclusively there, in which you have to think that Dick Cheney really is Darth Vader. But you can't have both. You cannot have a world where Iron Man can have fun, maybe marry Pepper Potts, everybody who commits sacrifice actually survives and lives with it and is happy, and on the other hand, have this other situation where really world-ending horrifying stuff is happening. 
Marvel is caught in between those two impulses, but the dominant one is obviously these heroes will disagree and then they'll agree and then it'll be fine, so they should stick with that. To go in the other direction would be to recreate within the not entirely conscious political conflicts of American liberalism the stuff at the first principle level that you see in DC movies. You could turn America's military industrial complex into Darth Vader or on the other hand, as you said, General Zod from Superman. You have certain options for that, but you would be transforming the story too much. It would be tragedy. It would be like a Chris Nolan series. And that's not what they were wanting to do. You just can't have it both ways. can't have everybody walking it off and have everybody treating this as the end of the world. That just is the complex problem of our latter-day liberalism. And the walking it off is really what reduces the stakes. The fact that everybody at the end of the day is pretty much going to be okay. I haven't seen Defenders, but I've seen the first season of Jessica Jones and the first two seasons of Daredevil. There are consequences, and characters deal with consequences. Whereas there are the no end of... consequences here. It's yeah, Marvel the the blockbusters. That's what they're selling. No consequences. At the end of the movie, everybody has happy... In Guardians of the Galaxy, there are five Jesus Christ sacrifice heroes, all of whom make it. One of whom seems to have died because he was a tree, but it turns out, no, he's eternal too. It's just inevitable. In the second Guardians of the Galaxy movie, Marvel actually upped the number. They went from five Guardians to at least seven, or I don't know how many. And you end up with this civilization of participation trophies. If you have enough screen time, relax. Soon enough, you'll have a Guardians of the Galaxy galaxy where everybody's a guardian. You're supposed to have fewer heroes, not more as the stakes go up. That's what Marvel is selling. Just like Deadpool starts with Deadpool, but there are at least three of him at the end, this sarcastic girl and somebody else. And I promise you, there'll be more. That's the direction they're going. That's what they want. And yes, that means playing for lower stakes. I think that's actually respectable and could be done well. But it has its own requirements and people should think about them and rewrite the stuff and make it less about these Jesus take the wheel moments where you sacrifice and it turns out that there's no consequences to sacrifice. That's ultimately going to suck. Ultimately, that was the same problem at the end of John of Justice where they kill Superman at the end, but you know he's not dead. In fact, they couldn't even leave his body in peace. They had to visually indicate to you that he's not dead, he'll be back because it was stupid and we hadn't intuited it. I haven't seen Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Would you say it passes the first Avengers test? No! This is a sequels problem. Every sequel is going to be worse than what came before it. And that's just not a way of doing franchise business without selling out your audience and your talent and everybody involved. But I guess you could call it planned obsolescence. Everything is forgettable by design. Yeah, I would imagine part of the problem with Guardians 2 was a problem that Avengers 2 had. Now, I think Avengers 2 suffered from some studio involvement. But the problem with Avengers 1 was these characters managing their differences. That came to a conclusion by the end of Avengers 1. And Avengers 2, having these characters completed that arc, you needed to have some other kind of conflict, external conflict that was reasonably plausible. And what they did was they simply recreated that internal conflict only on a theoretically bigger stage. With Avengers 2, the real enemy isn't Ultron. The real enemy is Tony Stark, we find out. Tony Stark's mistakes that created the problem. So what that does is that it recycles the conflict. And Guardians of the Galaxy 1 was an enjoyable movie about this different group of people who get together. But I couldn't see where the second movie go. Are they still going to be different and still be together? What's the arc now? So the arc there works like this. Guardians of the Galaxy is Marvel's way of working out the big deal in superheroes in our time, which is orphanhood. That movie takes the orphanhood in many superhero movies to a hilarious extreme. And uh, so the second one is about parricide. There are two father figures that die. One sacrificially, one is murdered, because fathers are no good. As if watching American movies hadn't already taught us that all fatherly authority has to be destroyed. That's how that works. But this other situation with Avengers, that's the Iron Man problem. Iron Man has got to be everywhere. Do you want to have a new Spider-Man? You're going to have to have Iron Man there. Do you want to have a third Captain America movie? That's got to be about Iron Man. It's not enough that you have so many Iron Man movies and the Avengers movies he dominates. Nothing else works apparently. And that's a really big problem. I don't think they're going to solve it because there is no Avengers, there's just Iron Man. That would have to be thought out. I do think there is a solution to this problem that they keep falling apart. That's just really realistic. No coalition really lasts. But the point would then be to say, we've got a real problem here and a tactical alliance. And that's the best we can manage. And that's a tragic realism of its own. Another real danger comes up, we're going to have to have a different tactical alliance. We're going to have to have a different problem. That's when you say that some of the heroes sit out some of the fights because they don't give a damn. It's not their problem. But for them to sit out, they would have to have a good reason. Exactly. And you'd have to deal with this kind of fact that those heroes aren't your fit 
fetishes. Yeah, but that means that they would have to see something about that threat that would make it not worth fighting. Yeah, because it's that not my would, problem. Or yeah. because it's not really all that wrong. They would have to be ambivalent. Yeah. And plausibly ambivalent. Exactly. About whatever the threat is. So Thor and, would have to say to himself, this is not ultimately my world. And he would have to say to himself that some of the fighting is glorious, and I mean it for glory to some extent. And some of the fighting is boring. I don't want to do that. And yeah, that's what you'd have to see that. These people are not super best friends, and that they're not your best friend. To be Avengers does ultimately imply a certain tragic realism to say that you can't rely on them that much. They cannot get it together that much. I would say that in America in 2017, that's actually super plausible. But also there's the implicit. I don't think they think of it as overly ideological. One of the themes of the Marvel Universe is that all these people who are very different ultimately come together. Eventually, they all share the same perspective. Yes, and I agree. that creates pad endings, but it also creates these guardrails for where the story can go. These characters can't really have enduring differences that are real, that are each in their own way valid. What that does is that if the conflict is going to be between characters... But you also know that the conflict is going to be safely and I would say falsely resolved. Wherever there's conflicts in the Marvel movies, it feels a lot like critics of sitcoms or even writers of sitcoms. They have a thing for what resolves the conflict. They called it the moment of bleep. That moment was where all the conflicts of the story are implausibly resolved and everyone hugs it out. Everybody's grown, even though nothing has changed. Marvel movies often end with that moment. In the sitcom, it comes in the last minute or two. In Marvel movies, it usually happens 15 minutes before the end, then they fight something generic. But since you know that moment's always coming, it does eliminate a lot of the dramatic tension. Yes, I agree. And I think that this goes back to liberalism. Liberalism means you have to choose between two things. One of them is diversity, and the other one is universal human brotherhood. You're just going to have to choose the one or the other. I can even see how I would work into a story, a conflict between these two options. So you can even deal with that. This is part of modern liberalism. Diversity means that everybody has to live his own way. But on the other hand, the universal brotherhood of man requires that everybody hug it out and be in it together. And the truth is that you cannot reconcile them. You could deal with that in the stories. So these are real problems with real workable solutions in story. But it's not happening because nobody's teaching the writers to take this stuff seriously. And also, the way the story tries to reconcile it is to tell us that these characters are very different. But at the end, to make them all agree. You start with the experience of diversity, and you end with practical homogeneity on everything except the externals. I mean, Thor still wears whatever the hell he's wearing. Iron Man's still got an iron suit. But they've really come to an agreement on everything that matters. So at the end of the day, what you have is a superficial diversity but you have practical homogeneity. And since you know this is coming, since there's never a fear that these divisions of perspective and interest will last through the third act, you can't invest in it as much. Yes, I agree. We've really thought through this to a good conclusion. You do really have to face up to this problem. Do you want dramatic interest? Then that means you're going to have to take the specifics of characters, experiences, principles seriously. And you can get the kind of diversity that keeps stories rich and moving. On the other hand, if you want to hug it out at the end, there's just not going to be a lot in that. You do get better entertainment this way. You do get less forgettable stuff. All right, Pete, we've gone through this stuff far more than we thought we would. We've got, I hope, a lot to show for it for our audience. It has been another surprising and really fruitful conversation. Thanks for telling me about this. And whatever your next idea is, we get our own sequel. We have full creative control. <laughs> What's the special effects budget? <laughs> That's a good question. That's just me editing audio. Oh, I do not envy you editing this. So <laughs> Thanks for the conversation, Pete, and let's do this again sometime soon. Likewise and definitely. Bye-bye.